0: Welcome to A Story of Us podcast presented by the Anthropology Public Outreach Program at The Ohio State University. Our guest today is our newest hire, Professor Elizabeth Holdsworth. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: So to begin, can we talk a little bit about a new book or article you read recently that struck you?
1: Sure. So I had just read an article by Edward Quinn with Connie Mulligan and Lance Gravley and some of their colleagues, including a community participatory research group. It's called Social Patterning of Vicarious Discrimination, Implications for Health Equity. It's in social science and and medicine. The reason I wanted to mention it is because they delve in depth into the idea of vicarious discrimination, in this case, mostly racial discrimination experienced by African Americans. Uh, They're specifically looking in, in Florida. They're not They're not the first to, you know, define or or describe vicarious discrimination, but they do a really good job of summarizing the different impacts it has on health compared to individual discrimination. I guess to take a step back, vicarious discrimination is discrimination experienced by other people in your life. So it's not directly, you know, not directed at you as an individual. It might be things that, you know, the other people in your family or friends experience. And I think this is a really important Concept that is, as the authors know, like very understudied, especially when it comes to researching the impact of stress and racism on health more broadly. Most research is focused on individual discrimination, and we certainly know that, like, racism is a much sort of broader issue than just individual discrimination. So it really shifts the focus from the individual to the broader community, and that allows them in in this case to explore how this discrimination, or if you want to do it more broadly, just talk about stress, is socially and ecologically patterned, which I think is just in general an important topic of research in anthropology, is looking at how stress is patterned across populations. They found a few different factors like gender factors, differences in in how vicarious discrimination is experienced by men and women, as well as finding that vicarious discrimination is just more prevalent than individual discrimination. So it's it's sort of a, a huge oversight when we're trying to talk about the impact of racism on health if we don't account for that. So I thought that was a great article, highly recommend, yeah. It, it's an important piece, I think a good summary of the, the research on this topic so far.
0: So this, the second question really is kind of delving more into your research. So could you describe the impetus and goals of the mother-infant microbiomes, behavior, and ecological study, and what does this work tell us about infant health?
1: Sure, so the Mother Infant Microbiomes Behavior and Ecology Study is a project that was led by Courtney Meehan and Masha Gartstein at Washington State University, as well as Janet Williams, Mark McGuire, Shelley McGuire at University of Idaho. I came into this after they had collected data on it and analyzed some of the, the data and published results on it. I think it just came out this past month along with also Ryan Pace and Avery Lane, just want to give credit to everyone who was involved. And the purpose of the study overall was to identify the influence of early childhood environments on human milk and gastrointestinal microbiomes and their relationship to maternal and infant health. And in my paper, in particular, I wanted to identify whether breastfeeding patterns, structure, behavior have an impact on the milk microbiome.
0: So the way that children are feeding?
1: Yeah, and and Okay. The way that mothers, you know, sort of time or respond to their their infant's needs because it's very different, you know, it's very different across cultures and across individuals whether there's, you know, on-demand feeding, which, you know, is going to be much more frequent probably shorter bouts of feeding compared to feeding styles where maybe you only feed like three times a day very regularly with longer bouts of feeding. And so we wanted to know whether those different styles have an impact on what bacteria is present in the milk microbiome. The milk microbiome in general is still like a really open field of research. There's a lot that we still need to know. So some of Courtney Meehan's work in The Central African Republic with hunter-gatherers and horticulturalists had found that there were impacts of the infant caregiving network on the milk microbiome, and she thought that perhaps this could be due to these different patterns of breastfeeding structure and behavior. So that's what we wanted to test. This was among women in the US like in Eastern Washington state and Idaho. And we did find that frequency of breastfeeding was more influential than the total time breastfeeding for the milk microbiome as well as associations with infant's non-household caregiving network. So we at least did find that, you know, these patterns of breastfeeding, most importantly frequency, so just, you know, how often you are breastfeeding, not necessarily the entire time over the course of the day that you're breastfeeding, but that seems to have an impact on the milk microbiome. I'll say right now, (laughs) I don't really know what that means for infant health. I think a lot, again, the microbiome research in general is is still pretty wide open, and I don't think there's a lot of really settled conclusions about the relationship of, especially the milk microbiome to infant health, but we certainly know that the milk microbiome impacts the infant gastrointestinal microbiome. And we know the gastrointestinal microbiome has all of these other associations with health. So that's kind of the next, the next area of of research that has to be explored is really what this means for for infant health. But I think it's uh, I think it's interesting as just a a good like biocultural approach to understanding, you know, how these very frequently, you know, socioculturally and many times, economically, breastfeeding um, breastfeeding patterns and behavior are, you know, structured by the socioeconomic environment in which people live. And this, through this research, we are showing this kind of pathway by which these other factors shaping breastfeeding might have an impact on the composition of milk, with possible influences on infant health.
0: So I wanted to ask, what is the established role of maternal stress on infant health? Like what is the research that's out there? Of course, it's a, it's a wide topic, but just maybe we could talk about it a little bit. And then can you talk as well about epigenetics as, in relation to this? So how that kind of gets into this as well?
1: Sure. Yeah. I, um, I had a lot, a lot of thoughts on this, on this topic. I'll say, you know, the, the general thought about maternal stress on, on infant health Is that particularly in the prenatal period there are possible direct impacts of exposure to cortisol mother's cortisol on the developing fetus that have downstream effects on development broadly most research has focused on the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or the hpa axis which is involved in the stress response that's what produces cortisol which people like to refer to as the uh, stress hormone, although it does a lot more than just um, stress responses. And most research, like I said, is focused on the prenatal period and also some on the kind of caregiving behaviors in, in infancy. A lot of this research has certainly focused on epigenetic mechanisms. I think it is a really promising field for understanding how development changes, you know, developmental plasticity acts in general. And so what a lot of research has found is, is certainly that maternal stress, especially again in the prenatal period, has these different patterns of methylation of genes related to the neuroendocrine axis, the HPA axis that I said before, methylation, for those of you who aren't familiar, are just, this is an epigenetic mechanism that just says whether these points on your DNA are going to be read or not. They basically say whether, you know, the genes are on or off. Uh, a very a simple way of explaining that. Um, so it doesn't, you know, change the underlying DNA. It just changes how they're being read. I will say I I don't think that there's a really great consensus about maternal stress on infant health. Maybe others would say otherwise, but you know, so far from just meta-analyses and systematic reviews, I think the state of knowledge right now is just pretty messy and has a lot of uh, research left to do. I had recently published on this topic in the American Journal of Human Biology with Larry Shell and Allison Alpleton using the LSBAC data set, so that's the Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children. And we wanted to see whether maternal caregiving behaviors with their infants, irrespective of maternal stress, just seeing if caregiving behaviors in general were associated with these epigenetic patterns in childhood, so these genes that were associated with the HPA axis or the stress response. And we did find like small effects of normal variation in caregiving on methylation of of this gene, the NR3C1 gene. And so my conclusion there is that caregiving behavior may be a way for postnatal maternal stress to shape infant development. If mothers are stressed in the postnatal period, then they might have different sort of reactions with their infants. And this might shape infant development through epigenetic mechanisms. But as I said, I don't think that there's a really good consensus at the moment. Measuring stress is very messy. Measuring developmental plasticity or programming is very complicated, so people can have different physiological responses to stress in adulthood, like when they are pregnant or caring for children, depending on their own early life exposure to stress. And only prenatal exposure to stress might have a different impact on epigenetic me- epigenetic programming than prenatal and postnatal exposure to stress. So it's hard to say what this means for you know health throughout the lifespan if you're only looking at stress at one point and not another, and that there might just be different different patterns of epigenetic programming depending on you know whether you're exposed chronically to stress over these sensitive periods of development also different types of stress and, and the chronicity of stress can have different impacts on maternal physiology and infant development i think probably one of the one of the hardest things about stress is just really whether people's reports of stress actually map on to their physiology. So if you ask, for example, participants whether they experienced a specific stressful life event, that has been, I would say, more consistently associated with an increased cortisol concentration, especially in hair. It's like a marker of chronic stress. But if you ask them about their perceived stress, like using the perceived stress scale, which is very commonly used, that is a almost always unrelated to cortisol concentrations. So, you know, it, it also kind of matters what kind of stress you're asking people about. And the other thing that I think is really important, especially when I was talking about that paper that recently came out about from from myself about maternal caregiving behaviors and epigenetic programming of this stress response related gene, I think there's a sort of knee-jerk reaction that any impact of maternal stress on infant development, fetal or infant development, must necessarily be bad. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. In general, too much stress is certainly not good for health, but also having no stress in development is also not great for for health long term. It basically means that your reactivity to stress later in life will probably be too much, like you will essentially be, yeah, you'll be overreactive, you'll be too easily stressed, essentially. So you do have to have some amount of stress and also stress is not always bad. I know one example that I'll sometimes give is, you know, going on like a roller coaster or watching like a horror movie. Like you feel stressed. Well, uh, at least I do. I don't know. I feel stressed. Um, Most of the time it's like this kind of feeling of safety at the same time. You don't actually feel threatened but you have the same sort of physiological stress response. We do sort of seek out some amount of sort of like stress uh, stimulation to, to some degree, varies between individuals. but <laughs> Like, you know, I'll go on a roller coaster, but I'm not going to do like base jumping, right? Everyone has different, different levels of, of sort of stress that they're willing to experience but you do certainly need some amount of stress not not all stress is bad it's just bad when it becomes overwhelming essentially
0: do you think that this this is best studied like with a longitudinal study how how what are the methods to kind of get at where that that stress is is impacting especially since you're mentioning like the prenatal and postnatal is there a way? Is there a way other than that to kind of get at it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the best the best approach, or is the most challenging. But I think the best approach would be a life course approach. There are certainly some some studies that are able to look at you know periods of this. I think the Cebu longitudinal study has measures of prenatal and postnatal stress and some of these epigenetic patterns, but Yeah, I mean, really the the question would be because, you know, kind of interesting what this means for adult health and and functioning and well-being. And that means that you do have to have a full sort of life course analysis where you are able to say, you know, what kinds of stress were experienced in prenatal, postnatal, childhood, adolescence, and and all of adulthood. There is uh, certainly research that indicates that current stress still might just be more important than past stress so in terms of you know what that means for for your current physiology like like uh, cortisol production and then also you know having multiple biomarkers of of stress because you do want to know what is actually happening in the body we use cortisol as a kind of rough measure and I think it is useful in a lot of ways but if you want to know you know what is the impact of stress on cardiovascular disease well maybe then you should be looking at more you know cardiovascular metrics and not just cortisol so all the you do all the things over <laughs> over an entire lifetime
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so uh, my next question is about your research from your PhD program. Uh, I'm wondering about uh, what you found and, and how you explored the role of social support on infant health in that, in that research.
1: Yeah, so that was from the, the study that I worked on with, this was Alison Appleton's Albany Infant and Mother study. She's an associate professor at the uh, University at Albany, as well as Larry Shell and Kevin Kiley. And so this was a prenatal to birth cohort and there's, there's a lot of research out of this study, m- more than necessarily what I'm on. And what we found specifically in the case of social support was that uh, we wanted to see whether there was an impact of mother's adverse childhood experiences, so sort of severe stressors in early life, on their birth outcomes, because uh, we were recruiting them in pregnancy. Uh, Specifically, we were looking at infant cephalization index at birth, so cephalization index is a ratio of head circumference to birth weight. Um, A higher score means that there is sort of asymmetric growth in utero, uh, essentially less weight than expected for how large the, the head grew. So you have more head growth in second trimester, more weight is put on in the third trimester, so you sort of see. Uh, a fairly large head, but then sort of slower growth in the the third trimester, leading to a lower birth weight than you would expect. And we found that for women who had a lower number of adverse childhood experiences, so less than four adverse childhood experiences, more social support during pregnancy buffered these effects on their baby's uh, cephalization index. But for those who had four or more adverse childhood experiences social support really didn't seem to overcome the effect of these adverse childhood experiences on birth outcomes this does kind of go back to the the earlier question about you know stress throughout the life course you know the reason that we think that adverse childhood experiences might have an impact on birth outcomes is because of the impact that it has on women's own development in ways that can lead to these uh, differences in, in birth outcomes in, in their adult life. But I think the the most important takeaway from that study was that, you know, there is there is certainly a benefit to positive experiences in pregnancy, particularly social support, positive factors. And so if we are trying to identify ways to improve birth outcomes or just ensure that fetal development is sort of following the trajectory that that we would want for better health outcomes in, in infancy and the lifespan, then we need to be better supporting women during pregnancy, it sounds like that should be obvious, but um, I think it is unfortunately still not really there that women could certainly use a lot more support, social support, certainly resources in general during pregnancy to help them. So yeah, and and I think in general it also points to the importance in research of still identifying these positive factors on fetal development and, and infant development as well.
0: Wonderful, thank you. I'm wondering about your new and future plans for research here at Ohio State, as well as uh, current teaching and and future teaching, and uh, opportunity for student participation as well?
1: Sure. So I'll say broadly, my research is interested in how the sociocultural environment and social inequality patterns people's exposure to both psychosocial stress and environmental contaminants in ways that impact infant growth and development and teasing out some of those biological mechanisms like the epigenome and microbiome to identify you know, some of these, these pathways. I'm particularly interested in maternal infant health just because infancy is a sensitive period for growth and development. And I think just a little bit more understudied than the prenatal environment. And especially everything with, with milk composition is, is pretty understudied and breastfeeding impacts on infants. Growth and development also fairly understudied. So some of the the projects that I know that I'll be starting up soon. So one is I put in a grant for funding, so fingers crossed, but looking at intra-individual variation in infant growth and milk composition over time. So seeing how some just sort of fundamental components of milk composition change within individuals over short periods of time and how that might relate to changes in infant growth, again, over pretty short periods of time, and I think it's a, it's a really exciting, I think it's a really exciting uh, project idea. There would certainly be opportunities for grad students to work on the project because we'll need to collect longitudinal data from participants, including anthropometry skills. So if you're looking to learn how to measure infants, basically, then you would have a, a lot of opportunities to work on that project and, and develop those skills if that's something that you're interested in, as well as just general experience working with research participants, and also at least one undergraduate student who would be interested in in helping with sort of just the logistics of research, human subjects research, like recruiting and and enrolling participants. So I know that I'll, I'll definitely need some student assistance on that project, and I think it would be a really great opportunity to get involved in data collection for a study focusing on maternal infant health. And then for people who maybe are not necessarily as interested in doing some of that field work, but just are interested in, you know, analyzing data or just answering questions using a larger data set of people, I still have the LSPAC data set like my, my subset of the LSPAC data set. And there's a lot of questions that I have left to answer using that. I have the, the maternal and infant epigenome data. I haven't even looked at the maternal epigenome data. And for the infant epigenome, there's, you know, it's the entire epigenome, well, eight, I think it's 850,000. CPG sites, but essentially the entire epigenome. Lots of things to look at there, as well as measures of infant and childhood growth and development. So there's a lot of data that I probably won't really be able, even myself, to get through. So students are certainly welcome to contact me to either assist on an analysis or writing up a paper, or if they have research questions in mind that overlap with the data that I have. I'm glad to work with them on getting access to that data and developing that analysis and, and paper. It's a really rich data set. And there's even more data that we could request from the ALSPAC team to be added on. There's there's so much. And then, you know, there's there are other projects that are a little bit earlier in their development, so I'm not going to really get too in-depth but there's definitely going to be room for students to participate in data collection and analysis. So broadly, if you're interested in environmental determinants of maternal infant health, stress, social inequality, definitely get in touch with me. I'm I'm glad to talk about ways for you to get involved. I'm, I'm always looking to, I love working with people on research. So if you, if you do want to ever get involved in any of these, these topics, I'm, I'm really glad to help you also develop a research question if you're kind of just not sure exactly what you want to do. All right. So for teaching, I'm offering growth and development and anthropology of women this semester. I won't be teaching in the spring. And going forward, I'm, I'd am i like to continue offering growth and development. It's definitely one of my favorite topics. You know, as I mentioned, development early in life is so important for just like lifelong well-being and health. I don't. Know. I think it's a, a fascinating topic. I really enjoy it. And then, otherwise, there are a couple of topics that I'm thinking of developing. Uh, sort of seeing what people are interested in. But I, I am thinking of maybe like human epigenetics or the human microbiome or even like an anthropology of infancy, which I think could be really cool. Infants are human infants are really fascinating and really important too. Know, uh, human evolution and health across the lifespan just really
0: fascinating and uh to conclude and uh to conclude is there anything along those lines or anything else you'd like our listeners to know about your research or your teaching
1: sure yeah so um I did want to say there's another project that I've been working on that I think normally people are pretty fascinated by. So I've been participating in a breastfeeding and cannabis study. This was through my uh, postdoc at Washington State University. This is a project that is led by Courtney Meehan at Washington State University, along with Shelley and Mark McGuire, Janet Williams at um, University of Idaho, as well as David Gang, Celestina barbosa liker at WSU, also with support from I just want to give everyone credit with support from Anna Barham, Beatrice Cafe, Caroline Smith, Jenna Schmidt, Olivia Brooks, Irma Castro Navarro, and myself. And this this study was seeking to identify how cannabinoids in milk change over time after, after use among breastfeeding women. This is again a, a really understudied topic and with increasing legalization of recreational cannabis a lot of breastfeeding moms are sort of left without any real guidance on what to do for alcohol we have nice guidelines for women of you know you wait a certain number of hours i think it might be 2 hours per 8 ounces don't quote me on that look it up before you make any decisions but We have guidelines of about how long you should wait to breastfeed. We have no guidelines like that for women who use cannabis and are breastfeeding. The standard right now, because we have so little research is to just say, you know, probably is not a good idea. We don't have enough research to say, so precautionary principle, just don't use cannabis while breastfeeding. But we're saying that because we don't have enough research. And so most breastfeeding moms who do use cannabis are just sort of like left without any real helpful guidance, just precaution. So this study was an approach, an attempt to at least start to fill the gap in some of that knowledge. And so the, the paper that I'm working on hopefully will be submitted within the next couple of weeks for review is an analysis of how THC, like the psychoactive component of cannabis, how that changes in milk over the eight to 12 hours after first cannabis use among breastfeeding moms. We also didn't direct their cannabis use. So they were just told to use cannabis however they normally would. And so some of them used multiple times in this you know eight to 12 hours. Uh, so we also have a really nice overview of how actual cannabis use patterns uh, impact THC concentration in milk. So hopefully you'll be able to read the results of this study by the end of this year. But it has to you know, go through peer review before I really want to share the results. But I think that's a, a really interesting uh, topic and I think important topic. And then the, the other thing that I also wanted to mention was that as a part of this study, I also led a a follow-up that assessed infant development using the Bailey Scales of Infant Development. So this was something that our participants said that they thought needed a lot more research. Um, If they ever voiced concerns or just, you know, thoughts about breastfeeding and cannabis, it was normally that they really didn't know what using cannabis during breastfeeding meant for infant development that was the only thing that they were just like, I just don't know, and and felt like it was an important topic. So I, you know, conducted these assessments along with uh, Beatrice Cafe, also at Washington State University, and our next steps are to kind of actually analyze the data to see what is there. So we're not quite ready to actually say what the impacts were, but this is using a, a really nice, like, kind of gold standard measure of infant development, and then we have these great measures of what is actually present in milk, as well as information on how much um, milk, or at least how often infants are, are breastfeeding and consuming milk. So it should be a really, I think, informative, a sort of preliminary assessment of what cannabis use during breastfeeding might actually mean for infant development. So hopefully I, I'll have results to share for you next year is more likely. but. That's the other thing that I've been working on.
0: Excellent. Well, I want to thank you so much for the time today. Thank you to our listeners as well. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you.